Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Max Holleran, who's the author of Yes to the City, Millennials and the Fight for Affordable Housing from Princeton University Press. Max, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so to start us off, if you would, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and uh, your background and what it is that brought you to this particular book. So I have a background in urban sociology. I do historical and ethnographic work about changing neighborhoods. Um, I wrote my dissertation about tourism and the ways in which people experience rapidly changing coastal cities. But all of that work was in the European Union. So for me, as an American, to come back to a largely American subject matter, which is the issue of affordable housing and affordable housing activism, um, felt like a sort of natural detour, given the gravity of the situation. My previous work um, is largely historical, and this is a very topical book uh, that looks at a movement that is only about eight years old. Um, so in some ways, one thing that I was trying to do in this book is look at, you know, figure out in real time with participants how they're understanding the housing crisis. Um, and that's something that also I was drawn to having worked on gentrification and living in New York for 14 years um, that brought me to this topic as a kind of natural extension of my previous work on housing in Europe. Great. So so to, to lay out a little bit of the terrain first, you made reference to uh, the housing crisis in the United States. Um, talk to us a little bit about, about what that looks like. Why, why, why do so many people understand us to be in a housing crisis at the moment? We're in a couple kinds of housing crises. For a long time, we've really struggled with providing housing to working class people, to poor people. Um, and we've experienced a, a huge amount of homelessness. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, wages being a primary um, factor, but also uh, divestment in public housing for a long time. I think what's really changed with housing in the past 10 or 15 years is you've seen a jumping of scales um, from people who are in poverty to middle class people who formerly could get a house at a price that they thought was reasonable, pay a mortgage, which didn't seem like a burden, or afford rent um, in a major city um, without too much pressure. That's all changed. Um, And so one of the things I want to show in the book is that the housing crisis has become a middle-class problem, and that's attracted a lot of middle-class people who went to university. They have good-paying jobs. And they um, cannot afford to live where they want to live, uh, even when they're working full time. Um, So when we understand a housing crisis in the U.S., I think that it's long ago jumped from people not being able to buy homes to also people not being able to pay rent. And what's happened is that some of the cities that arguably have the best economies, and are the most pleasant to live in and have bright futures. Places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Denver, Colorado, Austin, Texas, have been very hard for people to move to and to afford to live there. Um, And in that sense, we see people experiencing a kind of regional shutting out um, where they feel like they can't access opportunities because they can't afford rent. 
So one of the things that people historically have pointed to uh, uh, as a factor that constrains housing supply and contributes to those factors is so-called NIMBYs. So talk to us, what's a NIMBY? What's NIMBYism? And then we'll segue into talking about the primary subject of your book, YIMBYs. So what's a NIMBY? NIMBY, which stands for not in my backyard, is a very bad term in the United States. <laughs> it is something that uh, no one wants to be and has taken on a sort of um, a outsized cultural significance. It means people who don't want to allow um, development in their neighborhoods. And that can look like a lot of things. In the beginning of NIMBYism, in the kind of mid 20th century variant, that often meant problematic land uses. So don't put the city dump next to my house. You'll, you know, you'll create lots of smells. Um, there'll be dump trucks coming at five in the morning and it will wake up my kids um, and it will decrease my land values. And that's the most important thing, which is that nimbyism is not just about um, the idea that people don't want to be annoyed by the things that happen around them, but also that it will affect uh, their major asset, which is their home. Um, historically, uh, NIMBYism has also meant a lot of other things. So it can mean not building um, a homeless shelter. It can mean not building a, a variety of different things that municipalities have to build in order to provide adequate public services. But also it has meant in the past um, not building low-income housing um, or not building uh housing that will bring immigrants or a more racially diverse population into a neighborhood. So whereas you see NIMBYism across the world, people don't want to live next to things that aren't, that are unsightly or that, you know, complicate their lives. I would say in the U S it has a particularly racial connotation. Um, a lot of it has to do with public housing. And in my book, I argue that a lot of it is just the very idea of apartment buildings in general. So people who live in the emblematic American suburb of single family detached houses, which most American cities are exclusively zoned for, you cannot build anything else. Those people don't want to live um, next to any kind of apartments, um, even if they're pretty nice apartments, even if they're pretty expensive apartments, because apartments have been codified in our imagination as Americans as something problematic, as something with too many people demanding too many services, and oftentimes as places that are low income and bring problematic people to the neighborhood. So, you know, in, in some of these discussions, NIMBYs will say, I don't want to be around apartment people. Um, so NIMBYism, of course, has taken on um, a really, really uh, negative significance in the U.S. Um, as people unwilling to make sacrifices, but also as people who are potentially racist. So then what's a YIMBY? So a YIMBY is um, a term that emerges um, in the past decade, more or less. And they are people who call for development um, in their neighborhood or in other central neighborhoods in American cities. Particularly, they're interested in the development of new housing and new housing that is denser and multifamily. So things like townhouses, um, accessory dwelling units, so a place in the backyard, something above the, um, the garage, and uh, most of all, apartment buildings. And they say that, you know, by embracing this idea, 
something here, they're helping to solve the housing crisis. And they're also building cities that are denser and more environmentally sustainable. Um, the way that they interact with NIMBYs is by taking their fight to local zoning meetings. And they understand these zoning meetings uh, where people for, for many years have fought for approval of apartment buildings as the real sort of stage for their conflict, where neighbors who have houses that they um, bought many years ago and have increased in value and who say no one else in the neighborhood were too crowded as it is, you know, this building will be too tall. It will have shadows. Um, we can't have it here. Build it somewhere else. Their idea is, look, there is nowhere else. We need to embrace buildings in our own neighborhoods. Um, constantly trying to find a new space or a new neighborhood will not solve the problem. So as as you detail throughout the book, there's, there's, there's opposition to... Yimby and Yimby-like approaches, not just from sort of the traditional NIMBYs, but also from other kinds of, of housing advocates who, among other critiques, argue that Yimby's really are, when all is said and done, really just a front for developers. How do you how do you think about those kinds of arguments and how we should be thinking of the, the folks who self-identifies associated with Yimby movements? Well, I'll just say by way of background that there's dozens of YIMBY organizations. The most famous are the ones in the Bay Area, um, started about eight years ago, um, who are very vocal about building more housing in San Francisco and its suburbs. Um, they have a number of campaigns um, to build uh, higher density um, housing next to transit, They've elected um, legislators. They've influenced um, policy at the level of the city supervisors. And they've also started programs like Sue the Suburbs, uh, where they will actually sue suburbs for not meeting housing requirements. Um, they are perhaps the most vocal and well-known group. Um, they're very online with lots of extremely aggressive debates um, on Twitter and other forums as well as in local zoning meetings. At the same time, you know, there's, there's at least 5,000 people who are actively involved in this movement um, and represent a number of different groups across the U.S. Um, and also in the U.K., in Australia, in Sweden, um, and number, uh, Canada, a number of other places. Um, so they take varying views on um, public housing and on affordable housing, but their main point of view is that we need to build something, and that something can be market rate housing or it can be affordable housing, um, but any kind of addition to the housing supply um, will help address demand and slowly lower prices. That's kind of one of the, the main sort of pieces of dogma if you're going to adhere to that term. Um, the thing is that that is not where some of the housing debates in cities has been at. The, in many cities, the housing debate is much more progressive um, and has concentrated on the need for refurbishing or building new public housing, um, having um, uh, co-ops or having um, zoning mandates that have uh, affordability built into them. So um, many people in the anti-gentrification movement are very skeptical of Yimbyism. One of the big reasons is that they don't think that supply 
um, solves all of the issues and that it will not bring down prices across the board um, for uh, low-income residents. Uh, I should also say that um, there is a big existing fight about where to build housing. So if you're a YIMBY, you say that um, housing should be built in already wealthy and successful neighborhoods um, where they have good transit and good access to services. And in that sense, you sort of say, well, we're, we're pitting ourselves against the NIMBYs. We're pitting ourselves against people who are usually older, who are middle class, if not rich, um, and who have nice houses. Um, whereas in practice, some of the neighborhoods where they've argued for more housing, um, such as the Mission in Castro in San Francisco, parts of downtown Los Angeles and parts of Brooklyn and New York are actually still gentrifying neighborhoods, um, which have a n- number of lower income tenants in rent control apartments or in um, low, low cost apartments or lower cost apartments that who, who could potentially be displaced if more development happens. So that's really made them um, some a, a target of people who are in the movement to keep low income communities in the center of cities and to avoid displacement. So the, the book, Max, as, as you no doubt well know, it sort of frames these kinds of debates in, in a, a, a generational frame as well as a geographic frame, right? So in the U.S., you look at San Francisco, Boulder, and Austin, and then turn to some places in the U.K. and Australia, but also talk about something that you just referenced, this uh, sort of class versus generational conflict, boomers versus millennials, owners versus renters, whites versus people of color. Um, where, where, where do you think is the most useful way for, for us to start? Should we talk a little bit about variation from city to city and then maybe in there talk about how those conflicts play out? Yeah, let's talk about some of the cities first. Great. Um, uh, yeah, start where you'd like to. Let's, let's start with the Bay Area because that's the, that's the kind of ground zero of this movement. Yep. Um, so the, the Bay Area... Um, has gone through just an absolutely tremendous um, jump in uh, unaffordability. So um, when I was writing this book, the average uh, rental apartment in San Francisco was over $3,500 per month. Um, So that's something that, you know, some of the informants for the book who are Yimbis argued even on a tech salary um, it's really hard to pay for that. So, you know, people who are working in tech, who are lawyers, um, who have really pretty well-paid jobs, um, you know, found this to be a burden and um, and couldn't imagine how they could possibly stay in the city. Um, so in that sense, you know, they had a very different experience than people who had previously come to San Francisco, found it expensive and kind of moved out of the city to qualify for a mortgage and found a place to buy. Um, these are people who are who are upper middle class, have professional jobs, and are having pro- problems affording their rent. And they have, you know, buying is not even an option for them, and they're not even thinking about it. So the kind of drive until you qualify idea of, you know, 20, 30 years ago has been really thrown out the window. And, you know, all the almost all the people who I spoke with who are in the Yimby movement were under 40 and, um, and they were part of the millennial generation. And they saw this as something that was specific to their generation. Um, 
having weathered the 2008 financial crisis um, and also living in cities with very high prices, they saw this experience as fundamentally different from the kind of affordability that was available to their parents. Um, and so in some ways, there's they're, they're not wrong, right? They're not wrong. No, they're not wrong. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, in if whether we're talking about Generation X or the baby boomer generation, it was much, much easier um, to buy a house. And um, we can, you know, there's a there's a kind of housing economics argument, which we could get into, but that's about whether this is really a question of supply or whether it's about stagnant wages and inequality. Um, but for the people in the Yimby movement, it's purely a supply question. And they see their barrier to entry into the housing market as directly caused by people who will not allow new housing. So in their mind, the people who are not in my backyard, NIMBYs, they kind of have their cake and they want to eat it too. They live in nice cities. They oftentimes live in these really nice neighborhoods at the edge of the city where they have a house and a yard, but they also can catch the bus or the train and be in the city in minutes. They can drive, they can take public transportation. And so um, in the mind of the Yimby activists, these people are being quite selfish and they see it as kind of a generational struggle, which is, um, you know, and it's, it's almost Oedipal in the sense that they want these people to make sacrifices um, for uh, for them to get into the housing market. And those sacrifices look like building more things in their neighborhood. Um, so in that sense, it's very much framed as, um, you know, people over 50 or 60 are not doing this kind of basic urban planning thing, um, building more houses that would help our lives. Um, and, and that makes it very generational. Um, generation is also strategically used, which is that in terms of housing affordability in the past, it was often put in terms of social justice, economic fairness, um, and particularly, um, issues around specific demographic groups that were racial or class. Um, in some ways, the Yimbis think that they can create a broader tent by talking about this issue in generational terms. Um, at the same time, generation can be a little bit tricky because not everyone in the generation is as economically disadvantaged or advantaged. And so it becomes a bit of a slippery thing. Um, I will say that one of the things in San Francisco that also really influences this is that people who are millennial generation um, activists in this group, they grew up with a very different kind of city. They, um, you know, they really like urban life. They really like apartment living. They like walking. They want bike lanes. They want small, you know, farmers markets. Um, so in some ways, it's not just advocacy for housing, but also for lifestyle, um, which is, you know, the kind of social aspects of density, um, the kind of argument that if we built more apartments, people would know each other better and be able to, um, to get on better. And that's something also that um, is very subjective in the sense that um, a lot of, you know, Yimbis say, you know, we want to live in a, a city where we know our neighbors. We don't want to be in the single family homes of the past. Um, and, and because we don't think that they're as socially conducive. 
Um, so tell us a, a little bit of, of the story of Boulder, Colorado. How is, how is that similar and how is that different and what's interesting about that case study? So Boulder, Colorado, I should say I grew up in Boulder. Um, and I, like many people, came to Boulder as a, as a kid um, from the Northeast um, because of my parents' work and also because it's an absolutely beautiful place. It is a city that in 1968 and 69 voted on building a green belt around the city that preserves the kind of emblematic mountain backdrop that I think a lot of us have seen pictures of, but it also built um, parklands around the community. And this was supposed to protect it from both development up the mountains, um, so no one could build a big mansion um, right in a kind of uh, scenic place, but also to try to limit growth and suburban sprawl. Um, and in the end, um, this kind of conservation policy didn't work. What happened is that a lot of satellite cities were built around Boulder that are now actually bigger than Boulder. And um, people just commute back and forth across the green belt. Um, so Boulder also refused to densify, um, making it one of the most expensive cities in the United States. Um, it is largely single-family homes, and um, and it's not very vertical. Um, and so what YIMBY activists there argue is that Boulder misidentifies itself in terms of being a community. Uh, they think of themselves as a little tiny college town, a place where everyone can live in their, you know, detached single family home. Um, and it doesn't need to build more housing um, because they're not a real center. They're not Denver. They're not Salt Lake City. Um, and they everyone can leave them alone. Um, the issue is that Boulder actually has um, between 20 and 30,000 university students. Um, it has a lot of government offices in science and technology. Um, it has an IBM office, and it is a huge um, up-and-coming place for tech startups. So it has a thriving economy, but it won't build housing for that economy. Um, and the activists who want to build more density into the city and who consider themselves to be YIMBYs argue that, you know, you really can't have um, a booming economy and no housing policy. You can't have a sort of, um, you know, like keep, keep the newcomers out um, idea of what your city means. And that, that a lot of cities um, have an idea about themselves as being small um, when in fact they are actually economic players that are quite significant. Um, and, and this kind of gets into one of the larger points that the activists make, um, which is that there's a, there's a real lack of regional mobility now to places that have jobs and that are successful. So, you know, they point to when you come to Colorado, they have these bumper stickers that are the Rocky Mountains and they say native on them. Um, or people, you know, try to, you know, talk about how terrible the newcomers are um, from California or from New York um, because um, they're disrupting the local culture. And um, a lot of the people who I spoke with found this really insulting because um, they found it tantamount to a kind of uh, nativism, international nativism of, of closed borders um, and arguing that, you know, you should really have regional mobility um, for people to match themselves with the jobs they want and the places they want to live. And that if you don't have that, um, it's 
there's something deeply um, problematic about a, play, a society where you, you, you don't have entrance. Yeah. And I think most labor economists would agree with that, right? Absolutely. Most labor economists would say, you know, if you're turning away, if you're if you don't have enough um, housing to get the person um, who works at the Bureau of Standards or the Bureau of Atmospheric Research in Boulder and who makes, you know, 115 grand and who has a Ph.D., then you're in the end going to be very disadvantaged by that. I think it's also um, in, in the in, you know in this chapter of the book, it's really about these smaller cities that have become known for a mixture of lifestyle and tourism reason, reasons, and um, some of them they they want to see themselves as towns, but there's also a, a real kind of jeopardy of of being in this category of some of these resort towns in Colorado, like Aspen or Telluride, which is that if you become an international lifestyle. Um, destination filled with just very wealthy people, um, you start having a, a problematic culture of only millionaires are allowed to live there. And you even also start having these kind of service cities nearby where workers live. And that's something very familiar to people in Colorado who know who the, the ski towns, the winter resort towns. Um, but for a place like Boulder that has over 100,000 people, um, it's very strange, but that's what's happened, which is that um, people who work in, who are uh, firefighters, who are police officers, who are teachers, do not live in Boulder. They live in the um, outer satellite cities, and and that kind of um, that that kind of spatial divide is a cultural divide, and it's it's one based on class that's become really problematic in a lot of American cities. Um, so let's now talk about your final U.S. case study, and that's Austin. What should we know about Austin, Texas? So Austin, Texas is interesting because it um, it marketed itself as a place that um, has a, a culture, an open culture um, within Texas. So a place that's um, queer friendly, a place that has an amazing live music scene, um, and that embraces people who are weird. So I think we all know. Keep Austin weird, right? Exactly. Is <laughs> Keep Austin weird is, is the tagline. Um, and that's often been used as something um, by locals um, to kind of uh, to protest against changes that could make Austin too much like Dallas or Houston, to bring too many big businesses there. Um, and to bring newcomers. And so a lot of people who want to live in Austin um, have said there needs to be a level of development um, that is robust and that provides new housing for people, not just student housing, um, but all kinds of housing um, that is also central. Um, the thing about Austin is that it's a place that has a very good reputation culturally, but does not actually have um, the kind of dense um, urban form that some sort of expensive American cities are known for. It's, it's a quite sprawling city. It's pretty car-based. Um, and people who are working in the housing space there would like to change that. Um, and, and they've come, they've run into a lot of, um, a, a lot of problems. Um, some of those problems are just basic problems like, um, you know, having, trying to get rid of parking mandates for buildings. So this is something, you know, if you, if you make, if you build buildings that don't have a car space per unit, 
then people might drive less. But also there's many places that require that within the law. Right. Um, so that's, you know, some of these small fixes, um, housing activists argue, would make for a more pleasurable city with less cars, but also it would make it easier for developers to build um, buildings that have a lower price point. Um, and so Austin is one of those places. Um, and I think Austin also really gets into some of the things that cultural sociologists and urban sociologists are interested in, which is um, when development happens, there's all these questions about authenticity, about who gets to be an old timer and who's a newcomer um, and how those things are, um, are, are become really problematic because um, it gives people a level of legitimacy when they're speaking at local meetings and when they're making decisions together. Um, and I should say that in, in Austin, it's a particularly fraught case study because Austin is a really racially divided city. Um, it's, it's divided by a highway um, that has um, that splits um, African American and Latino um, Austin from a uh, from a whiter um, uh, central city, and um, and Austin has had uh, continual encroachment into the Black and Latino sections um, to build um, new housing. Uh, this has made it one of the cities that's that's really really lost a tremendous amount of its African American population. Um, and and the kind of whitening, if we can call it, of the downtown of Austin is has become quite an issue because um, it points to not only an erasure of economic diversity, but also racial diversity as housing prices go up. So, Max, as we work our way toward toward concluding the conversation, I, I want to get you to think a little bit about 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 solutions. And I guess I want to frame this by by asking given how much of the 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 nimby arguments are based on not entirely irrational concerns about what happens to their home value and 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 how central uh uh housing is to to wealth right for people who have assets the primary source of their asset is the home right so it's it's not irrational that you are going to be hyper vigilant about protecting that asset how much of this problem do you think is simply rooted in the fact that in the united states houses are as much assets are as much financial instruments as they are places to live I think that's a huge problem. I mean, I think that in some ways, one of the things I disagree with the most about the NB movement is that it's very personalized. It's about individual people, individual neighborhoods, um, you know, doing the right thing and allowing other people to build. Um, I don't think that that's much of a solution. I think that the solution comes um, from larger policies. And I will say that the NBs have been quite good at things like getting rid of single-family zoning-only ordinances um, and al- allowing across the board to build um, more housing, the issue is also the financialization of housing. So, um, you know, people are holding a lot of money in their asset as a home, um, and I think that um, if that were to change and people were to um, have more options in terms of investment. Um, outside of their home. So people who, who saw long-term renting as a strategy 
while putting their money into something like an index fund, um, which happens in some European countries, I think is a good solution. I think um, the way in which we treat um, taxes and mortgage deductions in the U.S. um, is a tremendous giveaway um, to middle class people. Um, And that's a a law that could be reformed at the federal level, although it's potentially toxic for any politician to touch. Um, But I I would say that, you know, the the kind of personalization of housing politics, um, which happens where people are are meant to do something more altruistic um, than protect their asset is I think it's important in some ways to call people out and say, look, you know, you have a level of privilege and you should let people into your neighborhood. Um, at the same time, it's very, very difficult because no one wants to sacrifice their own self-interest um, in order um, to to help, you know, a kind of vague sense of community. This is the New Books Network, and you've been listening to Max Holleran talk to us about his new book, Yes to the City, Millennials and the Fight for Affordable Housing, new out from Princeton University Press. Max, thank you so very much for joining us. Much appreciated. Thank you.